Welcome to Boston's Best, a podcast where you go behind the scenes with financial planner Mark Condon as he asks industry-leading experts in and around Boston to talk about their businesses. Mark will find out what sets these companies apart from their competition and how they have risen above the inevitable challenges they have faced along the way to their ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Mark Condon. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to episode 37 of Boston's Best. The goal of this podcast is to highlight businesses in and around Boston. My guest on today's episode is Danny Babineau. Danny is the CEO and co-founder of Redemption Rock Brewing Company in Worcester. They opened in January of 2019 and are a certified B Corporation, which means they're in business for more than just the profits and they give back to their community. Danny graduated from college with the initial intention of becoming an architect. She ended up falling in love with the craft beer industry, and the creative side to her was a perfect mix to start her own brewery with her then-boyfriend and now-fiancé. They went from finding their location in September of 2018 to opening in January of 2019. That's such a short time span to open a brewery, and it was an immediate success based on their opening day, Danny says. In this episode, Danny shares with us how big of an impact COVID had on them just one year into the business and how they were able to power through the past 12 months through the help of the community they've built. As soon as COVID hit, she said customers of theirs told her they wouldn't let Redemption Rock go out of business. It's amazing to see the culture they've built within their brand, and I'm excited for what the future brings for Redemption Rock. And be sure to listen to the end, as Danny shares a common misconception of the craft beer industry, what she would tell her 18-year-old self, and how she defines success in any given year. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Boston's Best. This week, we have Danny Babineau. Danny is the CEO and co-founder of Redemption Rock Brewing Company in Worcester. How are you doing? Good. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. It's gorgeous out there today. So it's about yeah. time. You got a nice little spring day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, already enjoying the nice sunny weather with the uh, garage door open and, wow. and just enjoying the fresh air. Yeah, that's Hopefully. awesome. That's awesome. So before we get into Redemption Rock, obviously, tell us a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up in the area? Yeah, so I um, grew up just kind of north of Worcester, um, where we're located. Um, I grew up kind of Pittsburgh till I was uh, 10 and then moved to Princeton, went through uh, Wachusett Regional School District there, and then ended up after school, like after high school, moved to Boston, um, went to Northeastern for architecture, and then spent a few years in Boston after that, and then started slowly kind of moving back west, um, went to grad school at Babson in Wellesley while I was living kind of in the Watertown area and then kind of went to grad school with the intent of opening a brewery and doing it in Worcester. So at that point, kind of once I got out of grad school, started looking at at moving back out to the Worcester area. So we've been back here for about four years. Okay. So architect to opening a brewing company. Yeah. Yeah. How does that happen? <laughs> um, it actually, I think it worked out really well too. Um, I feel like there's a lot of like kind of skills in architecture and design um, that transfer really, really well to entrepreneurship. And I basically, my, I did, so I went to Northeastern, so I did a five-year program in architecture because we do co-ops. So there's like a middle year and you're doing internships throughout kind of your, your, you know, last three years of school. Yeah. Um, so my last year of architecture school, I basically kind of burnt out on it. And even like one of the cool things about doing the internships uh, with Northeastern or co-ops is that you learn, you know, kind of what that major looks like in practice as a job. And so I realized that I didn't actually want to do that. Decided I just need to take a break for a couple of years. Um, So I worked in construction management, say, say, you know, I'll say something tangentially related, but, you know, not leave the field entirely. 
Um, and then my plan was to go back and get my master's in architecture after a couple of years. So I started applying for master's in architecture programs and just realized through writing essays for programs that I didn't actually want to. Like, it was just like, why do you want to be an architect? And I was like, I don't actually. Um, so then I totally had like quarter life crisis, thought I might go back to school to be a vet, like tried to like figure out what the hell I wanted to do. And at that point, my boyfriend and I had started homebrewing and volunteering at beer festivals and getting to know people in the beer industry. So we were um, kind of involved from a like consumer plus position. Um, and so we, I, we were both kind of trying to figure out, we graduated from undergrad in 2010. Um, he graduated in 2009 with a media studies degree. Okay. So um, there's not a lot of job opportunities in general. We started looking at other programs and other ideas. And I kind of just fell in love with the idea of doing an MBA, especially one focused on entrepreneurship, like at Babson. Ended up pivoting into that. Like literally, I had already been studying for my GREs and Babson took those as well. So I just transferred all my MR application stuff into doing an MBA and ended up getting in. And that was kind of like, well, I'm going to do this to, to open a brewery. My boyfriend, now fiance, who's our head brewer, he kind of pivoted into the beer side of things where I pivoted into the business side and we pulled in his twin brother, who's our head of marketing and another friend of ours that I went to architecture school with, who's our GM. Oh, no kidding. That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool that you guys. So, so was the idea to go into it together the whole yeah. time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It was just kind of like, all right, we're going to do this thing. And, you know, I think very, very early on, we pulled Dan in and then Kevin, I think, came on board towards the end of when I was graduating as kind of like, we need someone with that front of house experience. And he graduated from architecture school and then started working in restaurants and bartending. So he, we were like, well, he has that experience. So why don't we bring him on board as well to kind of manage that side of things? Nice. That's pretty cool. And you said what, four years now? For being open, we've been open uh, just over two years. Just over two years. You moved. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. We opened end of January, 2019. Okay. Okay. Uh, so let's get into it a little bit. How, I mean, starting your own business isn't easy, especially I'd say over the last decade, craft breweries have really, really started to pick up a lot. Uh, they're everywhere, uh, which is awesome because I can't, I can't do the, you know, those generic light brands. I can't yeah, do those yeah. things. Um, yeah, once you get into craft, there's really kind of no going back. Oh, there's really not. Yeah. I got yeah. into it, started getting into it probably five or six years ago and there's absolutely no going back anymore. So, uh, you know, let's talk about some of the, from, from the beginning, like, how did you guys find your space? Like, what was that process like? Was that difficult to, to find? Um, It wasn't easy, but I've definitely heard of people who have had a lot more difficulties than we did. We, we knew we wanted to be in Worcester and we knew we wanted to have a decent sized space that wasn't, you know, enormous. And we also knew that we wanted to be taproom focused. So it was important to have a space that would allow us to do a really nice taproom. And so we looked at a few, few spots and kind of got progressively bigger. Every time we saw a space, we were like, okay, that space was nice, but like, well, I think we could go a little bit bigger. We could go a little bit bigger. Um, so where we're in now is about 6,000 square feet. Yeah. For a small brewery, it's pretty big. Um, it's definitely not that big compared to like some of the, you know, Wormtown right down the street or like these other like campuses that people are building now, but it's a decent size for just starting out. And half of that is taproom. Too. We have a really, really big tap room, 100 seats, 150 capacity normally. And then the, the other half is uh, the brewery and production space. And everything is definitely pretty tight and efficient. Um, and we definitely have a lack of storage space. But I think we got fairly serious with maybe three or four spaces and kind of getting into talking about um, we're at the point where I was developing some of the design ideas and um, 
talking through kind of some lease terms and things before we ended up in the space that we're at. And we actually, so we're in um, an old Coca-Cola bottling facility. Oh, no way. Yeah, it was built in 1940. And it's right off of kind of like the restaurant row in Worcester, which was not even something that we needed. We kind of were like, you know, breweries create their own destination spaces. We don't need to be here. Yeah. Uh, everybody's like, oh, you're going to be on Shrewsbury Street. And I was like, we really don't. And then we ended up here anyway. But uh, yeah, so we had come to look at another space on the back that would have been a lot cheaper, but it's basically a big uh, box that they have been used as a batting cage. And now there's like a mechanic in there or something. So if we were a manufacturing focused brewery, it probably would have been more appropriate. But knowing that we wanted to do taproom stuff, we were kind of like, okay, maybe this could work. And then our landlord was like, well, I have this other space that I think could also work for you. And so we came around to the other side and looked for the space that we ended up in, which was partially it's like an L shape. So kind of the end of the L was storage and we were able to open that up. And then um, kind of the long piece of it, they were using. So the current owner and tenant in the front of the building is um, a school of massage. And so they were using this space to teach people actually how to massage dogs and horses. Super unique. Uh, but they actually, I think they moved that business to Lester. So he was like, I was thinking about moving it anyway. So if you guys want to use the space. So it ended up working out really well. And then we did, I did all the design for the space myself. Had a friend do kind of the code review and stamp everything on it because I'm not a licensed architect. And then... Yeah, we did a lot of, we did pretty much all the finish work and stuff ourselves, all the painting, built like a wood wall. I did all the tiling. So yeah, it was definitely a process. We signed off on our loan and got funded on our SBA loan on the day after Labor Day in 2018. And we opened January 26, 2019. You were open for, so you've been open for two years, we'll call it just a little over two years and legit half of that has been with COVID. Like we'll get into COVID later. That's fine. But like the first year of business is not an easy thing to start uh, for any company. Tell us about some of the early challenges that you had and then some of the early successes that you you had too in the first year. Yeah. I mean, so definitely our biggest struggle through the whole process of getting open was definitely getting financing, trying to get funded at pre-revenue in a capital intensive business is very difficult. In addition to getting an SBA loan, we did personal loans. We did some grants from the city. Um, we did a WeFunder. We had some friends and family financing, um, but it, we was very much scraped together. And there was really, and we had obviously some, you know, unexpected expenses as we were going through the process of getting open. And that a lot of that ate completely into any reserve that we had. So when we opened, we literally had no extra cash. It was like, we need to get open this weekend or we're not paying rent. Like, we need to get open now. And like literally the day before we opened too, I was at City Hall like basically begging them to give me my liquor license because the CO was complete, but they didn't have the paperwork yet. So I was like literally dropped off cupcakes to inspectional services, uh, which I was told was kosher because it was less than $50 and they could share it. So it's not a bribe, but they, uh, so that, and they were like, Oh, that's so nice. And they gave me the inspector's cell phone number because uh, otherwise they don't get in. They're not in there during the day. So then I called him and he, ended up sending an email with his blessing to the licensing person so that she would give me my license so we could get open. So yeah, we opened with nothing extra. So it was definitely, you know, that was a struggle getting through the first year with basically no cushion and not knowing, you know, what to expect, what months were going to be busy, what wasn't, and trying to, you know, be able to cope with that. So it was definitely incredibly, so like, yes, getting it, like we really haven't had a chance to breathe yet because it was getting open uh, just getting funded, which was so stressful, and then and just harrying, and then the build out process, which, like I said, we did most of the finishes ourselves, and I project managed it myself. 
So it was like 18 hour days, like setting tile and, and just like just exhausting work to get open. And then the first year there really was no let up and we were learning everything on the fly. Most of us had not been in these are, you know, the position that we were in before and definitely not to this level. So we learned a lot. And then as soon as we got into the point where we just hit our one year anniversary, we had a great February last year and we really felt like things were starting to take off and COVID happened and the shutdown happened. So it really, yeah, it's been an intense few years. One thing I'd be, I'm always curious about is what, how breweries come up with the name. So how'd you come up with the name Redemption Rock? We... Definitely struggled with it. We had a couple of different working names before that. And our goal, kind of the touch point that we use a lot is um, uh, Ballast Point, which is obviously a very big brewery now, but they are out of San Diego. And Ballast Point is an actual location in San Diego that is a fishing spot that's kind of like a local spot. Like you only know about it if you're from San Diego or live there a long time, but it's just a cool name otherwise. Yeah. So that's kind of what we were going for. So the actual like story was like, we used to go away every um, Columbus Day weekend, kind of just as all of us being friends. And and so we happened to be, we were going to the Berkshires and talking about stuff and looking at like maps of Worcester and trying to come up with something, couldn't figure it out. And then we had borrowed one of my parents' dogs for the weekend. And so I grew up in Princeton. We were dropping the dog back off. And Redemption Rock is a... Uh, kind of historical and natural location in Princeton. And the road that it's on is called Redemption Rock Trail. So we were driving to my parents' house and our head of marketing, Dan and his wife were in the car behind us and their GPS said like, turn into Redemption Rock Trail. And so that was kind of the impetus where he was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And then we all yeah. went to dinner afterwards and he brought it up and we were like, oh, that's awesome. And so we it kind of hit that point where it's like a local thing. I, when I was in like middle school, went on field trips there. There's a big rock climbing thing behind it. It was something that was local and kind of obscure enough where it wasn't Worcester Brewing Company or something obvious. And it has a cool name to it. And there's a lot that we can play off of it. And yeah, and also we're in an urban location. So having like a tie-in to something that was a little bit more like environmentally focused was a cool thing too. I'd be curious to hear, I mean, there's got to be like 8,000 different kinds of names or probably more than that at this point. How do you how do you go about the process of one, new flavors to try, new new mixes to make, and then the names, do you guys have like this, like text chain, just going back and forth of different names and sometimes, yeah. um, sometimes it's that, I mean, we got into full blown fights about beer names, before <laughs> too, but a lot, uh, so some of them are just like, uh, we get lucky and we come up with something. Some are more tortured. Sometimes we have the name first that we think would be a good name. And then we build a beer around it, which we still have some that we haven't even done yet. That are just like ideas that we have. Uh, mostly like bigger beers that we just haven't had the kind of bandwidth to make yet. But like our our year-round beers, um, which are Three Decker, Warcastle, Blackstone Stout, and Edelstein. The Three Decker, most of them are Whistler names. Edelstein's the only one that isn't. That one our brewer came up with because it is it's a so it's a German Hefeweizen, but it uses a lot of new German hops, which are Opal, Sapphire, and Pearl. And so Edelstein means gemstone in German. So he was like had that in mind that that was what he wanted to do. And we have people named whose last name are Edelstein who come in and are very excited about it. Uh, Three Decker, Blackstone, and Warcastle are all Worcester related. Warcastle is the etymological root of. Worcester, England, which is what Worcester, Massachusetts was named after. Yeah, I found that on the Historical Society's website. And then uh, three-decker is the original term for triple-decker housing, um, which actually originated in Worcester and is very prevalent. And then Blackstone is for the Blackstone Canal, and that's a dry Irish stout. So 
and the Blackstone Canal was mostly built by Irish immigrants coming into Worcester. So those ones um, we kind of had set early on because we knew we were going to do them. We have like a spring seasonal series that we had in our heads for a while. That's the birds, the bees, the flowers, and the trees. Um, and then we built beers around those. We have an IPA series that pivoted off of one concept, which was like naming rotating IPAs after dogs. But one of them that was really successful was called, called Daisy. I was like, you never can that because of Half Acre has Daisy Cutter. So we kind of refined and, and moved that into like an outdoor focused and inspired series of IPAs. So they all have labels that are like outdoor scenes. So that year became Sunrise Bay and it's like a palm tree scene. And so, yeah, they kind of come from different places. Some stuff we've just gotten lucky, like our Oktoberfest, we ended up naming Thackeray after Thackeray Binks from uh, Focus. So there's a lot of just research and looking things up and what sounds good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. I'm always just curious and intrigued how people come up with the names because there's so many names and there's so oh, many... Yeah recipes and flavors you can try and then and then you get to come up with just the labeling of yeah. a can if it's going to be canned you know like what yep. like a catchy it's it, it's not easy so you gotta have no. a really you gotta have a lot of collaboration behind it so yeah it's intriguing to me yeah um, a lot of googling and yeah. <laughs> reading Wikipedia pages and just coming up with stories behind the beer yeah no exactly people love the stories so i guess so we talked about early challenges obviously what about some early successes that you guys had in that first year where you knew you knew you had like a sustainable business and you were onto something. Yeah. I mean, so our opening day was definitely an early confirmation that people were kind of excited, which was insane. There's still like so many crazy stories from that, but like just being packed all day from the moment we opened and having people busting through the door to, to really closing and just being exhausted. But um, that first day was definitely an early confirmation that people were pumped about what we were doing and there was an appetite for it. And I think generally throughout the whole first year and, and through the second really is I like seeing people just really like fall in love and having really loyal, excited customers about our space and our brand and people being really passionate about that. Like I, I saw a story the other day that one of our core values is to exceed customer expectations and that people should love being in our space and interacting with our brand. And I would always say like, I just want people, my number one goal is just for people to say like, I love it here. And that's like hearing people say that back to me every time someone says that back to me is awesome. And so like the fact that that happens a lot is definitely, you know, showing that, you know, we are getting that traction and getting, you know, building that customer base of people who are, who are not just coming here and enjoying the beer, but kind of loving everything that we're doing in a way that they really want to support us, which was then shown through, through the shutdown and, and pandemic. So um, that's definitely been been awesome, those kind of customer interactions. I would love to get your opinion. Why do you think craft breweries have gotten so big lately? Is it just the fact that like people just appreciate like real crafted beer, uh, you know, not some of this standard light stuff? Uh, I guess it's, it's they're a cool place to hang out. Like, yeah. what, what, what's your take on it? Because I, I love checking out different breweries. Like, it's fun yeah. to just do a tour of breweries in your area and just go around for a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even like the tap room part of it is kind of on the newer side. And there's definitely a variety of reasons for that. Mostly that you can make a lot higher margins on of selling beer yourself that you made than in selling it, you know, to somebody else first. So that's definitely been an impetus for people to do more tap rooms and to get people to come to them. But I think there's also just, you can really build a brand, build a brewery, brand that resonates with people and that makes people want to come and get immersed in that brand. Like I think of like 
Um, so my favorite breweries, um, Allagash is kind of my go-to and like, I love them and want to support everything that they do. And just so for me, if I'm going up to that area, I'm going to Allagash and I'm going to spend as much time and money there as I can. And I want to support that because I can really, um, kind of, you know, understand what they're doing on a larger mission scale than I can, you know, Oh, a really good barn for me. Yeah. Um, so I think it's easier to build that brand. I mean, the growth of craft beer is fairly complex and kind of, you know, multifaceted as far as like looking at different timelines where you have people starting to get, you know, Starcraft breweries in general in the U.S., which kind of started when homebrewing was legalized. So all these people could actually, who had had overseas experiences, but we didn't have any good beer in the U.S. And so trying to people homebrewing and then turning that into a career and doing something that didn't exist here, the Sierra Nevadas and the New Belgiums and the, and Boston beer and kind of that growing. And so seeing that come onto the market. And I think that really was about something that was completely different than what was available in the market, as well as coordinate or not coordinating, but kind of being aligned with local food, good food, things that are like prepared with care and all of that. So I think that those things really kind of coincided with each other and that, you know, spurred like what you were saying that people just want to have better stuff, more flavor and and get more um, out of what they're drinking. And then I think kind of more recently, people were really concerned with where they're spending their money and what they're supporting and yeah, finding, finding brands that resonate with you. And you bring up a good point too. I think um, one, like, I like that you said, you just want to spend as much money as you can when you go to Allagash because like, obviously there's competition, but one thing I've noticed breweries, they really love and appreciate other breweries because there's so many different recipes that you can try. Like, you know, there's so many different ways to make a stout, you know, there's so many different ways to make so many different things that everybody seems to be really like just really into it together to try and help the like overall brewing community grow, which is really cool to see. Yeah. And it's, I mean, people, people are always saying like, Oh, it's so crowded and so competitive. And I'm like, it, it, I, first of all, I think that the idea that it's saturated is a misnomer. It, and I think that it's more just becoming more competitive. And so you have to work harder to stand out, which I think is great, actually. I think it make, makes for um, a better market overall. Sure. Uh, but I do think that, you know, I don't necessarily want to drink my own beer all the time. Or maybe, it, you know, I feed off of what other people are doing all the time creatively um, to get inspired to do other things or to kind of push ourselves. And so we look at breweries like Allagash or Notch and get really inspired by what they're doing. And, and you know, we're still consumers as well. So I want to experience those different things as well and want to see them succeed. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, I can appreciate that. So you talked about people try- focusing on where they're spending their money too. Obviously, uh, you guys were impacted by COVID. What was the response, you know, with your, your, area in particular like how much of a support did you guys get throughout covid yeah i mean our um worcester is a pretty close-knit community that loves to support worcester stuff and loves to support locals so i mean i even remember the day that the shutdown was announced and like having customers being like we're not gonna let anything happen to you guys and like i think definitely and you know getting a lot of messages when people were buying gift cards and things like that so we definitely saw a lot of support both from individual consumers but liquor stores who um, some of our, you know, most vociferous supporters in like local liquor stores were discounted every Worcester um, beer in their stores until tap rooms were open again. We managed to get a grant from the city pretty early on in April that covered our rent for April. So I think there's definitely been a lot of 
effort to, you know, support local businesses even more so. Like it's, it's such a community that loves local business, but through the pandemic, obviously we wanted to lose as few businesses as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and me too. Like, I mean, we've gotten takeout lots of places, um, trying to support as many people as I know as possible because for the most part, we all know each other too. Yeah. And, you know, we have a pretty tight knit community of small business owners in the city. So it was definitely something where we all want to see everybody else sur- survive and do well. Even when everything was going on last year, like any breweries I went to where I was, you know, they had to, to go like the pickups that you can, you know, curbside pickup and then uh, restaurant takeouts. I noticed I'm just tipping more. And it's not because yeah. I felt like I had to, like, I genuinely want to help. Like, yeah. you know, even if it's an extra 10, 20 bucks here or there, like it's not going to crush, you know, it's not going to crush yeah. my life savings, but it's going right. to help a business yeah. that like you guys got put in a situation where you had zero control over yeah. any of this. And like the restaurant industry, the brewery industry, you guys got absolutely crushed by the rules and the regulations that you had to live by. And it's just like, it's heartbreaking because those those type of businesses are big in certain mm-hmm. areas and people love their go-to spots for breweries yeah. and restaurants. So, you know, I just, it's good to hear that because I just found myself always wanting to just tip more. Like it's just, yeah. you know, it's just, you're just trying to help out as much as you can. That's kind of what had me start the podcast is just to try yeah. to help out local businesses, you know? I'd be curious, do you how how well do you and your fiance work together? You guys running a business together? You know, are you we don't actually work together a lot. Um, mostly because we're on like opposite, like we actually yeah. don't see each other a lot during the day because he's in the brewery uh doing his thing and doing that, and I'm mostly not involved in that, um, where we have to have conversations about stuff. I mean, and anytime that you know we're working together, usually it's either a logistical, like I gotta order labels or we gotta schedule a canning date. Um, when's this going to be ready, whatever. Um, or it's, you know, if it's a larger discussion about like goals or the direction of the company and things like that, then it's a group discussion. So it's not like us two just deciding something. There's four of us. And I think for the most part, the four of our personalities work pretty well. And we, we were pretty conscientious about, you know, setting up expectations and, and working styles and things before we opened too. Um, but even like having other people, like if we do get into a disagreement about something, we have, you know, up to other people to mediate or, and, and same thing if somebody else has a disagreement. So we all work together really well. And I know that like, you know, family business stuff and um, having larger partnerships definitely has a bad reputation. But so far, so far for us, it's definitely made us better to kind of have different perspectives and different skill sets while building the company. You just never know, you know, so that's yeah. awesome to hear that you guys balance each other out pretty well. It sometimes just makes it hard to talk about stuff besides work because we don't, neither of us has anything else going on for the most part, but yeah. (laughs) What have you guys found to be good forms of marketing outside of word of mouth? Uh, Social media is huge these days. Um, What have you found to be a good source of marketing for yourself and something that, I don't know, isn't as, it hasn't been a really great source? I mean, honestly, it's mostly social media is what we do. Um, We did a little bit in 2019, um, like more traditional advertising Um, But that was more, we would do kind of ads and stuff for special issues of like the local magazine or something if they were doing a crappier feature. So we do stuff like that. Um, You know, we love, you know, love doing interviews and like this type of thing with different podcasts or just even like having good relationships with local press and um, doing lots of interviews and stuff about that. So, I mean, some combination of PR and social media um, has definitely been our go-to strategy, which has worked fairly well. And then, yeah, just word of mouth and and kind of creating those strong relationships where people want to um, support us really vociferously. Within Redemption Rock, do you have a favorite? And outside of Redemption Rock, uh, you mentioned Allagash. What's your 
is that your favorite? Like what's, what's your favorite? Yeah. Brewery? I am, I am, I am terrible and stubborn about picking favorites. Uh, <laughs> cause I don't have, I'd like, I basically, especially with beer. Cause I pretty much like, especially with our beer. Cause I like pretty much any style. It just depends to me on my mood and the weather and kind of, you know, what the newest thing we came out with and stuff like that, depending on what I'm drinking or what I'm eating. And I, will acquiesce that my uh the three decker lager is definitely kind of my go-to which i think comes from more the fact that it's a nice easy drinking nice light lager so it makes it easy to drink a lot of beer which i usually drink a lot of <laughs> but if i'm drinking ipas all day my pal is going to get blown so i usually mix it up but that's definitely a go-to for me and then outside yeah, Allagash is definitely um, up top for me. I would say Allagash, Notch, and then I love what Jester King out in Texas is doing. They're kind of like a bucket list brewery for me to visit. I was supposed to go to the Craft Brewers Conference last year, which then got canceled, and it was in Texas. So, um, uh, yeah, I was like, I'm finally going to make it to Jester King. <laughs> um, but they're doing a lot of cool stuff with wild um, fermentation and stuff that I would I would love to check out. But uh, I mean, I've had their beer before, but I really want to go down and check out a lot of their farm complex and stuff. But yeah, definitely Allagash and Notcher are two of my top ones, but we have friends at so many breweries and I mix it up a lot. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta. Yeah. Shilling uh, too. I love shilling. They're doing a lot of cool stuff up in New Hampshire with uh, continental European style uh, beers. Oh, nice. Okay. You're also a certified B Corp, yes. right? So what, for people that don't know what that is, what, what is that and how did that happen? So B Corps are kind of like the, their tagline is uh, for-profit businesses doing good. So right. it's essentially when you break it down on kind of the legal end, it's just that you are allowed to have a goal with your company other than making profit. So it allows like it allows you to make decisions for things like, you know, we want to make sure that our, our workers pay are paid a living wage. We want to use recycled materials. So things that like technically like you're, if they cost more money, you shouldn't be doing right. that if you're a corporation. So that's from kind of the legal kind of incorporation side of it. But um, the certification is essentially a checklist of um, items that, you know, you, it's 200 points total. You have to get 80 to get certified, but it's just a flexible checklist of, things that you do that are creating a benefit, whether it's for your community, your workers, the way you're governed, a lot of like transparency stuff, um, or the environment. And so we just actually got our certification in September. Um, and that was something that we have been working towards since before we opened. Um, Allagash is actually also a B Corp, um, Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, those types of companies. I think a lot of times it's easier to kind of figure out what it is based on like, oh, Patagonia, like Patagonia, King Arthur Flower. So uh, yeah, but anyway, so yeah, we kind of learned about B Corps at a craft brewers conference a few years ago where we knew we wanted to do something more than just run a business or just make beer. We wanted to find a way to make an impact in our community and do something that we were really excited and proud of and force ourselves to be innovative. And so um, I was on a panel or I went to listen to a panel about, you know, um, impactful businesses and it happened to be about B Corps. And I immediately resonated with that. and was like, this is something that is exactly what we're trying to do anyway. So we, uh, started investigating it. You can't get certified until you've been open for a year, but we built the company to achieve certification, which made it a lot easier anyway, without having to go and change things or go back and get data or whatever. So we were able to do that from the beginning and and still get certified in the middle of the pandemic. So that's something we're really proud of. That's amazing. That's amazing that you're, you're doing that. That's a really cool feature um, of Redemption Rock. Are there any common myths or misconceptions about the craft brewing industry? Um... I feel like there's a lot. Um, 
I get, it's funny. Every time somebody sends me an article that's like in a mainstream publication, I'm like, yes, like half of this is true. But I think, I mean, definitely the, the saturation issue is one that bugs me because especially when we were open, I had a lot of people saying to me like, oh my God, it's so saturated. Are you sure if you we open a brewery? And I'm like, first of all, yeah. let's understand what saturation means. Right. And it's not applicable at all. Maybe it's applicable in like certain towns in Oregon where they have like, um, so many per capita, yeah. but like also, um, it's just that it has to be more, it, it becomes more competitive, which like I said, I think is better for the industry in the long run. Cause you just have to, you know, be better. And so I think that that is a good thing overall. I think, you know, it's talked about a lot, the misconception of, you know, there's a certain type of person that drinks beer and that person is usually like, you know, a white bearded guy. Which I have to tell you, especially since, especially since we've opened the brewery, that that it could not be more false. We more often than not have more women here than it, anybody else. Um, and I think that if you know such and such person, uh, you know, gender or ethnicity or race or whatever is not drinking your beer, that's not on them. That's on you. Like it's it, you know, every, it, it's such a. I love history and I love kind of sociology and I think that. That's essentially why I love beer is because it really is something, there's something for everyone. And even if you think you don't like beer, you just haven't had the right beer yet. And it's about finding that one. And that's what I love doing. I started out when I was in grad school, working at craft beer cellar was my first industry paid job. And I love people who think they didn't love beer because I'm like, you just got to find you one that will blow your mind. And then, and then you're done. And then you just go from there. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Cause my, my wife, uh, I'm big into stouts. The higher the ABV, the better. I love, I love the the heavy stouts. And uh, I forget where we were once, but I had to try it. And she's like, I, I don't think I'm gonna like it. I'm like, just try it. Like, just just try it. And I think, I mean, this was like 11. I think this was 11 ABV. Like, it was pretty high. Yeah. Like, this tastes like chocolate. I was like, yeah. Like, it's actually like it's good. So anytime, yeah. anytime we go somewhere now, she's looking for like a high ABV. Oh, yeah. Stout. Yeah. She, so, but it's. It matters what you tell people too about a beer. If you take, cause whatever you tell them they're going to taste, that's probably what they're going to taste. Um, as long as you're not totally in left field, but if you're like, this is a really chocolatey stout, that's what that person's going to taste. Yeah. And so that's definitely something like I even, I have one of our regulars who used to only drink sour. So now she drinks everything. Huh. But the first one that she had that wasn't a sour, I think was our Irish red that's back on. And I was like, Oh, it's got like these caramel notes and things like that. And she's like, Oh my God, you're right. It tastes just like caramel. I'm like, Sort of, but um, now she's got like this whole thing about it. And then that was her springboard for just liking everything. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, people don't know what, what they like until they try something, right? So like, exactly. it's like people that say that, you know, they've never had sushi, but they don't like sushi. Like if, you know, right. I was that person once and now like I'll try any kind of beer. Like I'll try yep. any kind of beer because I've been surprised by a few of them that I didn't think I was going to like that I actually thought was really Really yeah. good. Well done. And I, so. I think also, I, like, just to touch back on misconceptions too, I think, like, it's such a no pressure thing. And I think that as an industry, we've kind of created the misconception that, like, it's only for, like, the, the in crowd or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, like, people get really self conscious about, like, even, like, we do free samples. And I'm like, it's literally a no risk situation. I yeah. promise I'm not going to be offended if you don't like something. Yeah. So I can pour you a free sample, try it. If you don't like it, just tell me, we'll find you something else. And it should be fun and it should be accessible. And I think a lot of people do get intimidated by this kind of like cool kid aesthetic <laughs> and feeling of craft beer, but like, there's so much out there that it should be fun and enjoy. No, I agree. It's funny. You brought up like the guy with like the beard and the flannels. Like I can't even grow a beard. Like I should, 
I shave like once a week. Like I just like, <laughs> it's just, it's just not in my genes. Uh, so I can relate. I related to you when you said that. So what do you see for the future of Redemption Rock? You know what, you know, you guys have been around for two years, half of it, of which has been, yeah. you know, you, you dealt a blow with COVID, but you're here, like you're still yeah. around, like you guys got through it. So yeah. what do you see for the future of Redemption Rock? We're, we're honestly pumped about this year. Um, we're starting to plan events again for like the second half of the year. I mean, I've got a, a full year's worth of ideas for seasonal events and stuff that we weren't able to do. So it's just like, I've just been like cooking on them, but yeah, we, we just were able to get our patio expanded at the end of the fall. But now like today is like one of the first days that we're able to really do it. And so kind of building on that and we're going to do a mural outside on the outside of it and put um, structure over it. So We've got a bunch of ideas for kind of continually improving the tap room, um, continuing um, to add more brands to canning and building our distribution. So, yeah, this year is really about kind of getting a little bit back to normal, doing the tap room improvements we wanted to do last year, but couldn't um, and continuing to expand our distribution. But our longer term goals are basically to we don't want to leave Massachusetts from a distribution standpoint. We want to be mass only. We don't want to get too big. We don't want to be like a regional brewery. We want to get to the point where we're comfortable and then just keep on innovating and improving. But we would love to continue to add additional locations and tap rooms that essentially we think we do the customer experience side of things is really our strength. So we want to continue to do that in ways that also help us do different things in beer and do different things when it comes to kind of what is a tap room and what is that customer experience like and and how does that meld with other kind of business models and things like that? So for me, that kind of innovation, especially around the customer experience, is what really gets me excited. And and I think is what you know we see a lot of in our future. It sucks that you obviously couldn't do any of that stuff next last year, but you have all these ideas from last year, yeah. and now even more ideas coming up for this year that exactly uh, you can you can deploy them. So that's really cool. Obviously, you're a workhorse, right? Like you working, you guys. It does. It takes a lot to open your own business. You're young, so I don't know if this is like too far off for you, but with that type of it takes a, a strong mindset to start your own business. Do you ever picture yourself completely like 100% retiring and just like never working outside of being, you know, physically or mentally incapable of doing so? At this point, no. Um, I think that maybe we could get to the point where like doing like little side projects or consulting, like I could, like, I think that I definitely will still need something to keep me busy. Like even like with the pandemic stuff, like we were home for three months and I had taken on, like added a bunch of wedding projects and yeah. redid my apartment. And like, so <laughs> I do need something to kind of do all the time. And, uh, so I, I don't really see it. We'll see where we end up, but I don't know. I think that if I ever did retire, I'd immediately find something else to do. Yeah. I'm the exact same way. Like I, I'm always doing something, uh, like outside of my day job, like I, Hey, let's figure out how the hell to start a podcast. Like it took yeah. up an inordinate, yeah. an inordinate amount of time of my day that I had no, but yeah. I always want to try to do something. I think when it gets to the point I'm always going to have my hand in something uh, just because I got to keep myself busy. But so I'm always curious what other people think, especially business owners. But if you were outside of work, what are in visiting other breweries? What are some of the hobbies that you that you enjoy doing? So I like to try and stay creative, which I think helps me in a lot of things. I which a lot of that is now channeling into doing um, either stuff for our wedding and doing different projects and stuff like that. I've added so many DIY projects in the last year. (laughs) 
doing some other design projects and interior design and things like that. Now we're like, all right, well, once we get married, we want to buy a house and have like projects. Um, so that's like my next project for uh, next year is to try and get a house and be able to do some work. Nice. And then I actually, I used to sew a lot. So getting back into doing projects like that. Um, so yeah, staying creative, I can I think is kind of my, my goal with hobbies. Cause it's something that if I get too bogged down in the logistics of things, I lose, you know, that piece, which I find really fulfilling. So trying to do, um, and keep exploring different artistic mediums and, and keep pushing myself in that respect. Nice. When, uh, when's your wedding? October. It was supposed to be last October, but now it's this October. All right. Well, I would like to think by October we're good. So hopefully yeah, I would too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Well, early congratulations. I'm sure I'll talk to you between Thanks. now and then, but, yeah. um, so last, last couple of questions I've asked every guest on the podcast, the, these questions, if you could t- go back and tell your 18 year old self one thing, what would you tell her? I mean, I don't know. I like, I would probably just say, do, you know, whatever you're doing. Cause I think even though I deviated completely from what I thought I was going to do at 18, I think those skill sets and like that path to get me here is if I changed anything, it would have ended up differently. And I'm, I'm happy with where we ended up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a great answer. Cause yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing to me that people when they're 18 years old can pick a career and do that. Yeah. Oh, and I thought I picked my career at 11. Like I took an AutoCAD <laughs> class in middle school and was like decided that, that was definitely what I was going to do. And I thought that was the case until I was about 22. Yeah. So, and yeah. then I made a hard pivot, but I think that it ultimately uh, served me well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. My The very first job I ever wanted was to be an architect. Oh, really? Yeah. My uncle is an architect. Uh, okay. And he did, he did work over in Japan and China for like, I, at this point, it feels like 20 years. Like he's been over there forever, but that was my, that was the very first job I ever wanted. He would show me sketches he would do. And for whatever reason, I loved it. Obviously didn't do it, but. It's uh, a cool, I mean, like for me, it's a great melding of uh, kind of like science and and art, um, which is, I think that things that, you know, those two pieces of my brain actually work really well together. But I, I found that same kind of balance in entrepreneurship, at least the yeah. way we do things. So yeah, no, that's cool. All right. So last question uh, that I ask every guest is everyone has a varying depiction of what success looks like to them, right? So how do you define success? Um, I think, you know, I would like my stress to be down a little bit, but uh, <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I think it is just, you know, being in a place that you're kind of happy with where you are. I think that you know, I, I feel like we're pretty successful right now. We haven't gone out of business. We made it through the pandemic. We've also only been open two years. We're not profitable yet. Like there's a lot of places we want to go, yeah. but I still feel we've been successful at what we've done. I feel like I've been successful um, in getting to this point. So I don't know. I think is I, I almost want to evaluate it on a day-to-day basis because yeah. I think too much of like chasing success can be problematic and, you know, leave you feeling unfulfilled yeah. and you get kind of in this place where I will be successful when I'm like, I think we're already pretty successful. Um, does that mean that I have nothing else I want to do? No, right. just like the next thing. Yeah, no, I think it's a great answer, especially, you know, half of your existence for Redemption Rock was through COVID and you got through it. Like that yeah. is a success. Like you just have yeah. to relish in the fact that you were able to manage to get through it at such a young age from uh, you know yeah. a company perspective that that's a huge success so i yeah. think that i think it's a great answer and applicable to to you guys so yeah yeah i um, think looking back and evaluating whether or not a specific thing was successful is i guess more how i like to look at it yeah. rather than like on more of a broad scale yeah because those like those all 
grow on top of each other and ultimately right. creates like a, like an overall like big picture success. Right. Like and if something doesn't work and you a project fails or whatever, it's like, all right, cool. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I totally agree. Danny, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Boston's best. It was awesome having you on and promoting Redemption Rock. We'll be sure to tag you in every post that we make. So thanks for coming on. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. (laughs) Hey, everyone. I just wanted to say thank you for checking out my podcast. I really do appreciate the love I've received for this show. I believe now more than ever, any exposure to local businesses is great for them to receive. And I'm trying to do my part. If you are a local business owner or someone you know in the Boston area that would like to be featured on the podcast, please email me at bostonsbestpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please follow this podcast. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Instagram with the handle at bostonsbest underscore podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com backslash bostonsbestpodcast. Again, I truly appreciate the great feedback for this show and stay tuned for each new episode every Friday at 8 a.m. Take care.